Luke chapter 18, Jesus and the rich young ruler, Jesus and the law. If you don't mind looking on with me as we read God's word together, it says this. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God Alone, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more and this time and in the age to come eternal life. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would speak through your word today that we might hear it and receive it by faith. Father, I pray that for those who are here, maybe there's someone here who's contemplating, maybe they do need to put their faith in your son. Maybe they do need to embrace the gospel. Father, would you help them to do that maybe for the first time, maybe for all of us who are here, maybe for many of us who've been believers for a long time, would this word penetrate our heart? Would we come to see and to know you and to love you in a new and a fresh way this morning? So we pray for these things, in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Um, as a young Christian, one of the things that I struggled with the most um, was trying to figure out what's the relationship between Jesus and the law. If you read Scripture, it doesn't take you long to get to um, parts of the Bible where God tells us to do something, right? And we've seen that in this passage, uh, that God tells us not to lie, not to steal, not to murder, if I will say, if you want to know the baseline, how do I love my neighbor well, don't murder them. And so we, we read the Bible, and there's all these things that we know we're not supposed to do, and yet uh, the longer that we read the Bible, the more that we figure out kind of our whole thing is that we can't keep those commandments. We can't do that perfectly. And so there's, there, there's wrestling, especially when I was younger in my Christian walk, how do we figure these things out? How do we, how do we understand what the Bible has to say about the law, and more importantly, what do we think about what Jesus has to say about the law? I mean, Jesus here clearly commends the law as a, a, as a model for morality, as a way to, to uh, be a godly person, and, and yet, on the other hand, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians and in Romans that Jesus is the end of the law for all who believe. So what do we make of Jesus and the law? And so I'm, I'm just going to warn you up front, I am terrible to take notes off of. So I'm going to give you my outline right now. 
That way I don't have to worry about it the rest of the time. But uh, I think in this passage you see three uses of the law, three uses of the law, three ways that Jesus, or this passage, uses the law. And the first one, and I'm just going to do it simple and we'll explain it as we're going on. Uh, the law is an acquaintance. The law is an enemy, and the law is a friend. The law is an acquaintance, the law is an enemy, and the law is a friend. And we'll go more into detail. And I'm just going to warn you, we're going to spend almost all our time on number two. So we're going to do number two, and you guys are going to wonder, when are we going to get to number three? And then we're going to get to number three, and it won't be as long. So I've learned, I've learned you just got to let adjust expectations up front. So, Jesus and the law, three uses. The law is an acquaintance. Now, you'll notice there that the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, good, uh, good teacher. Now, there's a couple interesting things about this passage. Uh, One of the things, especially that Luke highlights, is that this is a rich young ruler, and we don't know too much more than that. Um, But in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was kind of run on a a wealth system. And so if you were a really wealthy person, you would go and you would give money to a lot of people. And you would try um, try to give a lot of money to someone and you'd want to put them in your debt. And that's how Roman emperors got into power. They would just go and they would dole out their cash and those people would then be obligated uh, because that person was their patron to then support them. And that's how Roman emperors sustained power and gained power and stole power is they would use their wealth to, and it looks like bribing to us, I mean, it kind of is, but they would, they, they would do that and they would try to build these vast patronage networks and the, the top echelon of Roman society were called the Roman Knights or we might call them the Equestrians. And so these were uh, people who had a lot of money, maybe like the top 10% of society, and those were the people who basically ran uh, the Roman country. And we don't know if this young ruler was an equestrian, um, but there were equestrians in the, the area, so it's not unreasonable to suppose that even if he wasn't, he had a lot of money, and here's why that's significant. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's a subtext behind it. Jesus how much money do you want so that you will be put in my debt? This man comes to Jesus and wants to get Jesus on his side. He wants to make a pawn out of Jesus, and Jesus is nobody's pawn. And yet at the same time, he says, good teacher, good teacher. And almost certainly he would have meant like rabbi or or teacher of the law specifically. And so what is so interesting about this is though even though this man clearly has suspect motives, even though this man clearly is not wanting to keep the law for the right reason, he still recognizes that the law is good. It's so interesting. This is what um, the Reformation traditions called the first use of the law, that the law restrains evil. See, all of us are created in the image of God. All of us are created in the image and the likeness of God. And, And so... Because we're created in the image and the likeness of God, uh, as Romans 1 and 2 says, there's something about the law which resonates with our, our deep soul, that there's something about the law that is deep within us, and God has put it there so that even though when the fall comes, the, the law is, is bent, like we don't want to keep it for the right reason, we don't understand it, but we still recognize that it's good. There's still something that resonates with us when we hear the law. I mean... This is, uh, we just read the Ten Commandments and none of us are going to get up and say heresy. We, we, there's something about it that we just know that it's right. We know that it's good. So let me give an explanation. Um, 
when Alexis de Tocqueville, the, the Frenchman, came to America and he wrote his great classic, Democracy in America, one of the things that he noted is when almost all the states that now we call New England were made up, they actually had the Ten Commandments in the state constitutions. I don't know if you guys knew that. That's very interesting. The state Ten Commandments were actually in the state constitutions of most of the states of New England. And that's not because the Puritans that founded the, ten, the states of New England uh, thought everybody was a Christian. In fact, all you have to do is read a little bit of the Puritans to recognize that's not true. But the Puritans recognized that the, the Ten Commandments uh, make for good society. They make for human flourishing. They, 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 they are, are good. So much so that even... Um, even People who are familiar with this area, like uh, Colin Woodard, who wrote one of my favorite books, American Nations, he, he calls this area secular Puritanism. So even though maybe a lot of New England is not really Christian anymore, there's still something about that law, a sense of ought, a sense of right, that there is a right and there is a wrong. And the law is it's neutral. They don't think positive. They don't think negative. They just recognize it for what it is, that there's something good. And maybe they don't have the right motivations for wanting to keep it. And yet um, they recognize that it ought to be kept. The law is an acquaintance and the law is also an enemy. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Just like in English and the Greek, there's more than one way to say alone. In English, we can say there's God alone or there's the only God. Well, there's, there, there's different ways to say alone in the Greek. And the, the word here that is used to describe God alone is actually the one God. The one God. So it's actually, why do you call me good? No one is good except for the one God. And a first century Jew would not have been able to hear the phrase one God without thinking back to the Old Testament, without thinking back to what today we call the Shema. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4, 4 through 5, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. First century Jew would have immediately heard when he says, no one is good except for the one God, he would have immediately heard the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And here's why that's significant. Even Jesus himself, in Luke 10, for example, says that the Shema is a summary of the law. In particular, it's a summary of the, we might call the first table of the law, the first four commandments of the law. And I know some of you have Presbyterian backgrounds, and so you know them all by heart. It's you should have no other gods before me. You should not make any graven images. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you should uh, com- uh, uh, dedicate the Sabbath to the Lord. You guys all know that. And so when Jesus says no one is good except for the one God, Jesus is kind of obliquely referencing the first table of the law. He's, he's kind of saying, are, are you saying that you can keep the first table of the law? Are you saying that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you saying you can keep commandments one through four? We'll come back to that. Then he goes on to the second table of the commandments, which is summarized by, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, that's commandment seven. Do not murder, that's an important one for brothers. Number six, do not steal, that's number eight. Do not bear false witness, that's number nine. And parents, you want to highlight this one. Honor your father and mother, that's number five. 
So commandments one through four, commandment number seven, commandment number eight, commandment number nine, and commandment number five. Commandments number one through four, number seven, number eight, number nine, and five. There's one, I'm not good at math, so it took me a really long time to see this. There's one commandment missing. It's number 10. You should not covet. You shall not covet. And what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting this man's failure to keep the 10th commandment. And so Jesus is not fooled. It's not like Jesus thinks he's kept the first nine commandments. Jesus Jesus doesn't think this man has been perfectly honest. He just recognizes that this man is wealthy. And for someone who's wealthy, a particular difficulty is not coveting. If Jesus was talking to a lawyer, he would have highlighted the ninth commandment, not to lie. (laughs) This is what he's doing. He's using the law to get at the rich young person's heart. He's using the law to expose his sin. The law is an enemy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Maybe you say, well, how can that be coveting? It's not somebody else's stuff. It's not something that belongs to somebody else. That's his own stuff. And the core of the Ten Commandments, when you get down to it, you can covet even if you're coveting your own things. So listen to these words of Jesus in Luke 12. Luke 12, the parable of the rich young fool, starting in verse 15, it says, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life, listen to how Jesus defines covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. To to covet, Jesus says, is to find the consistency of your life, to to find the essence of your life in stuff. To to covet, to covet is to want to possess something so bad you're willing to sin to do it. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Notice the connection of the language there of of what you treasure. And so to, to covet something is to treasure, to want to possess something so much that you're willing to sin to have it. Or as Colossians 3, 5 says, greed is idolatry. And that's really what's at the core of this. This man has made an idol out of his stuff. And that's what's the core of all sins is idolatry. And maybe you're wondering, do, do I have an idol in my life? 
And there's a really easy way to diagnose it. If you look in verse 23, it says, But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. If there is something in your life that to lose it would make you disproportionately sad, that might just be an idol for you. And that's the problem that the rich young ruler has, is that he... he has found the abundance of his life in stuff. He wants to own that stuff so bad that he's willing to say no to Jesus to say yes to that. And it's not like Jesus is surprised by that. In fact, Jesus brings up the 10th commandment for this specific purpose so that he can highlight the man's sin. And then Jesus says what is perhaps one of the most discouraging and encouraging things. Jesus said, seeing that he had become sad, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus here is highlighting the fact that for a rich person, covetousness, it makes it impossible to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? I just love this. It's the most discouraging thing, but encouraging thing he could have said. But he said, what is impossible with man? It's impossible to be saved by keeping the law. It's impossible to try to inherit eternal life by keeping the law. It's impossible. It can't happen. Is possible with who? With God. That verse has been put on bumper stickers and coffee mugs and sports teams, but is talking about salvation. Salvation is impossible with man. It's only possible with God. This rich union could never be saved by his own works. He can only be saved by God, which is why Jesus said, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? Why are you calling me? Are you saying what you know that you're saying? Are you saying that I am myself divine, that I am the one who can save you? It's not a mistake that directly after this passage, Jesus foretells his death. says, for see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit on and after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day, he will rise. It's impossible with man, but it's only possible with God and the reason for that is this, that even though you and I cannot keep the law, none of us can keep the law and therefore all of us deserve to be treated as lawbreakers, Jesus bore that penalty. Galatians 3.10 says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus is using the law to expose the rich young ruler's need for him. Because this man can never exhaust the curse of being a lawbreaker. Jesus was treated as a lawbreaker, though he was a law keeper. And by faith, you and I can be treated as law keepers, even though we're lawbreakers. We can receive the blessing of salvation, even though we deserve the curse, because Jesus deserved the blessing, but was given the curse instead. Jesus was in our place. The the wrath of God for breaking the law was put on him, and all those who respond in repentance and faith can truly receive him. It's not a mistake that this passage in Luke comes just on the heels of another parable. In Luke 18.9, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus is doing with this rich young ruler is inviting himself to be humbled by his own sin. He's inviting himself to come to the cross and to receive salvation that can only be found there. And maybe you are here today and you're wondering, how can I have that salvation? How can I be saved? How can I be like that tax collector and not the Pharisee? Well, you say exactly what the tax collector said. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The law is an acquaintance. It's neutral in some sense. It's also an enemy that exposes our sin and drives us to salvation. But the law is also a friend. Because those who are in Christ, those who have been united to Him by faith, those who have trusted in Him for salvation, find in the law a kind of guardrail for the Christian life, a, a friend that helps us walk with Jesus. The law teaches us how we can get more out of the Christian it's, it, it's It's over us in Christians, not in the sense for salvation, but in the sense of it helps us understand what it looks like to walk with Jesus. And in particular, we see this with the law of coveting. Because Peter says, and Peter gets a bad rap, and deservedly so. (laughs) He's kind of a moron sometimes. But in this passage, he's actually portrayed very positively. Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And that word homes is the word idios, and it's from which we get the English idiosyncratic. And it means all that is ours. And here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, I've left everything to follow you, Jesus. I have everything that belonged to me, all of me, much like John the Baptist. I have decreased to have you increase. And Peter, notice how Peter is being portrayed as someone who keeps the law when the rich young ruler doesn't. Peter's actually being portrayed as uh, someone, and not that Peter is trying to trust in his own obedience of the law to get salvation, but 
we see for Peter that, that this idea of not coveting, of, of treasuring Jesus above everything else, it, it, it's something that Peter does in coveting. The law about coveting gives him an aid in that Christian walk. And he said to him, that's Jesus, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And Jesus says the person who doesn't covet, the person who leaves their everything so that they can get the kingdom of God will get a greater reward. He says both now and in the age to come. So now they can experience that reward and in the age to come they can experience that reward. What is that reward? It's Jesus himself. The rewarder is the reward. The law about coveting in particular, it tells us to guard our hearts that we might not desire something else other than God is meant so that you and I might find the abundance of life, not in stuff, but in our Savior. And all ten of the commandments are given so that you and I, as those who walk by faith, might find life. And life abundantly, not in trying to keep the, but in Christ Himself. The law is an acquaintance, the law is an enemy, and the law is a friend. So let me give you just a couple of practical, quick applications. One, don't think you love Jesus more than you do. Don't think you love Jesus more than you do. That is the problem that the rich young ruler has. And I love, I, I love um, that you guys have a prayer of confession. We have one in our church too, so important in public worship services. And it's so easy to think, man, that person three rows down really needed to hear that. Don't think that you don't need that. It's so easy to think, man, if only my spouse was paying attention or if only my child was paying attention or if only this person... or. or that all of us need to be honest about where we're at in relationship to God. All of us need to be authentic and transparent because it's not like we can hide anything from God. We might be able to lie and fool ourselves. We can't fool God. Don't think that you love Jesus more than you do, but do think that he loves you more than you can imagine. Jesus doesn't reveal this man's sin just because he wants to be a jerk. Jesus doesn't reveal this man's sin just because he he finds pleasure in humiliating somebody. No, Jesus is revealing this man's sin so that he might see it and turn and find life abundantly. It's because of the great love with which he loved us that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. And when he died on the cross for our sins, it was a judgment on our sins and it was the gift of salvation. Don't think that you love Jesus more than you do, but do think that he loves you more than you can imagine. Number three, following Jesus will cost you. There there is no version of the Christian life where you get to take everything with you to glory. He who dies with the most toys still dies. Following Jesus will cost you. 
Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. You've never made a profession of faith. You've never cried out to Christ. To follow Jesus is to find everything in him, but it also means leaving behind everything else. Maybe you're here today and you feel the call to go into ministry and you're wondering, oh, there's this vocation that I like to do, or if I go into ministry, I won't be able to do this. And to follow Jesus, to follow his call on your life will cost you. But the cost is worth the reward. To know Christ and the fellowships of his suffering. To be able to say with Paul in Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is of no comparison to know Christ, to give up everything to follow him and to find in him life and life abundantly. I was reading last night the, the story of the martyrdom of Polycarp because I like to read old stories like that. And, and Polycarp was a bishop in the first century and, and he was very effective. He had a long ministry and a Roman persecution broke out and he was chased out into the suburbs of the town. And finally the Romans, they came and they, they found him and they just said, have mercy on your old age. Nobody's going to blame you if you just turn and just bless, sacrifice to the emperor. Just, just, just toe the line. No, you don't even have to believe it. You don't, just give him yours. And Polycarp said, 82 years. 82 years I've followed Jesus, and he has given me everything. How can, in this moment, can I deny him? To, to know Jesus will cost you but the reward is worth the cost. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you give us the privilege of knowing your son. And through your son of knowing you. Father, I pray for anyone who's here today. Maybe they don't know you. Maybe they thought they knew you before they came in and they, they are beginning to realize that this rich young ruler that uh, the problem is far deeper than they would have recognized. Father, would you help them to see the glory of the gospel? That though we are lawbreakers, you treat us as law keepers. And though your son kept the law, you gave him the curse for our sake. Father, I pray for all of us. I don't know the circumstance of everyone is here, but I pray for those who are here, that if they are con- contemplating giving something up to follow you, would you persuade them in the heart of hearts that the cost is worth the reward. We thank you for these things. In the name of your Son, our Savior, our greatest treasure. Amen.